We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully, the justice that was ultimately delivered. Jonah Lanto. Don Palumbo. It's good to see you, pal. Nice to see you, too. Even though I saw you in the car. Yeah. Saw you on the way down. Yeah. Uh, See, it's uh, it's always a little better when I see you on stage with an audience. We're doing an episode. This is what we came here for, and it feels good. We're in the fantastic little little town of Kildare, North Dakota. It's situated in maybe the most beautiful region of our state, the western part, and it's just near the Kildare Mountains. I actually did not know that it was a mountain range until earlier today when I was doing a little geographical research for this episode, and I was like, oh... Kildare Mountains. Got it. I'm going to wander in. I I also read that if there's Sasquatch in North Dakota, that's where he's hiding. So any Sasquatch sightings out there in the Kildare Mountains from any of you guys? No? This guy's like, yes, I saw one. (laughs) So big thanks to all of you for venturing into the cold to share an evening with us. And a huge thanks to everyone who takes a little bit of time out of their busy life to rate and review Midwest Murder on iTunes. Excuse me who takes the time to review Midwest Murder on iTunes. That feedback goes a lot a long way for us to, to, to improve the show, for other people to figure out if they want to give us a shot or not. So we, we love to share the reviews and read those. Don, I'm kind of curious, what are people saying about Midwest Murder these days? Yeah, we really do appreciate those those comments. We uh, they, they do amazing little things for our, our podcast, and it's the you know that support has helped us be a, a trending podcast in the in the top 200 so it's huge we appreciate that Dakota Lucky gave us five stars all-time favorite I cannot believe I didn't know about Midwest murder until recently I love you guys I'm a North Dakota native and I'm an, an avid this is a tongue twister for me true crime podcast listener I love the format you have and especially love the live recordings excellent work I can't wait until you come back to Bismarck hey we love Thank you, you man. we love you absolutely if you uh if you haven't heard by the time we announce this, we're, we're coming back to Bismarck, but we just can't tell you when yet. We'll be there. Plato Cooker gave us three stars. Have listened to your first three episodes, looking for another podcast to add to my list. The cases you chose to present are interesting and well-researched. When both of you are speaking at the same time at your typical rapid speed, that's my fault. Uh, however, it's impossible to hear what either one of you is saying, and it is so aggravating. I'm not sure I can continue listening to your podcast. I'll give it another chance, though, since it's otherwise a good production. Uh, this is a fair criticism it from, is. I think, our, our early days where we were getting things figured out. And I always, I always hope that if somebody does have this kind of experience, check out the three most recent and see if we've improved that stuff. Because if, if you don't stick around, you'll, just, you'll never know. Right, right. But and no one leads with their best stuff. I mean, you know, I, I that, hope give, give us a little slack there. I would. Yeah. I do not want our first episode ever to be our best episode ever. Right. I want it to be really good, but our best work should still be ahead of us. Agreed. 
You can also get merch from Midwest Murder. Please do check that out. You can find merch at www.toomanyshirts.com forward slash Midwest hyphen murder. We've added a bunch of new designs recently and we're always looking to add more. So if there's a certain phrase that we've uttered or something that you've heard that you think would be a cool Midwest Murder t-shirt, please send us a message through social media, email. We can accept carrier pigeon, whatever works for you. And, and again, to check out our merchandise, it's www.toomanyshirts, T-O-O, manyshirts.com forward slash Midwest hyphen murder. In this episode, we're going back to 1999. Pretty, I don't think we've been here before. I think we've been Have here. We? What, yeah, yeah. I think. Oh, I mean, okay. We've... In stories and, of course, in real life. But, yeah, I think yes. we've been here. Yeah. Or maybe we haven't. I don't know. It's hard to keep track anymore. Mm-hmm. E- episode 80-something by now. But 99, pretty fantastic year. I really liked 1999, even though the world was ending. So what was happening back in 99? As I said, civilization as we knew it was going to collapse in the year 2000. The Y2K, Y2K. scare was absolutely the biggest story and the biggest deal of the year. Michael Jordan also retired from the NBA for a second time and permanently in 99. Notable television premieres included The Sopranos, Family Guy, SpongeBob SquarePants, Law and Order, Special Victims Unit, and The West Wing. Ooh, The West Wing. I still watch it to this day. Okay. Oh my gosh, it's one of my favorites. Oh, big time. It was a big year for cinema. With the triumphant return of Star Wars in the form of Episode One: The Phantom Menace, also released that year, The Matrix, American Pie, and The Sixth Sense. Popular toys in 1999 included Polly Pockets, Game Boy Color, the Barbie Dreamhouse, oh. Sega Dreamcast, the Pokemon 35mm camera, and Don's favorite, the clueless hands-free telephone. Don't knock that. And it's, I'm not it's, knocking it. It's 2024 and... <laughs> You know, there are, I mean, we could do a lot of damage if we had her closet organization system from 1999. Absolutely. But we don't. Dr. Jack Kevorkian was found guilty of second degree murder for giving a lethal injection in a case of voluntary euthanasia. Very controversial. The online peer-to-peer file sharing service Napster was released in June and together we all and we all helped infect our parents' gateway and Dell computers with viruses while di- while downloading music on dial-up internet for 7 hours oh, so man. we could burn banger mix CDs I, for I our love, friends. I love that it's that they call it a peer-to-peer file sharing service. <laughs> we were ripping off music left and right. Absolutely. Thanks Metallica for ruining it. I'm kidding that we should have we should not have we they should have been getting paid. It eventually yeah. became Spotify, yeah. so it all worked right. out in it the end. Out. Speaking of viruses, in 1999, the Melissa virus, named after a Florida stripper, infected more than 1 million computers and caused over 80 million in damages. People were baited in with free nudie pics and passwords to illicit websites. I bet that was embarrassing to explain to your parents on your gateway computer. <laughs> right. Lance Armstrong wins for the first time at the 86th Tour de France. And on the last day of 1999, December 31st, Vladimir Putin, or Putin as we call him now, becomes acting president of Russia after the resignation of Boris Yeltsin. Hmm. If you've ever wondered how many times you're allowed to joke about killing your spouse before it becomes awkward, the correct answer is none. 
At no point is it a good idea to joke about the death of your partner. If you do make such a joke, just know everyone who uncomfortably chuckled has registered that moment in their mind forever, and they will most definitely testify against you in court when your eventual breakdown leads to tragedy. Saying it was a joke is uh, not a, that's not an excuse. (laughs) Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. (laughs) Furthermore, if the commentary was less of a joke and more of an outright description, not just of how to dispose of the body, but also how easy it would be, it's probably not a joke. As a representative of the Midwest, you have the obligation to politely tell your friend they're fucking crazy. They say, I've been thinking about severing my relationship. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I could kill my partner, dismember the body, and toss the pieces out with the kitchen trash no problem. Your response should be to promptly slap your knees and say, oh, well, I suppose, and get the hell out of there. Then tell everyone you know, especially the spouse. It's going to be weird, but you have a duty to tell someone their life has been threatened in very particular, seemingly well-conceived ways. Is it fair of me to create that sort of expectation, Don, or is it crazy and anti-freedom of me to think that we should warn people whose lives have been casually threatened by someone close to them? I think it's fair. I, I think I think it's fair. And if if you've gotten to the point where you can say exactly how you would dispose of your spouse's body, I think you should consult a divorce attorney. And we also have a shirt that says divorce, divorce is, easier is easier than, than murder. murder. Uh, and there's a reason for that. That's horrifying. So I, I have a feeling where we're going in this story. Let the record show both Don and I are pro warn someone their life has been threatened. Now that I've gotten all that out of the way, let's take a look at small business owners Kevin Kip Arts and his wife Patricia. In spite of living in the less than idyllic, somewhat crime-ridden, kind of dirty, and economically dwindling Midwest city of Jackson, Michigan, Kip and Patty really seemed to have a genuinely good, happy life together. At least for a while. For the record, I'm not picking on Jackson. Based on the most recent report, the Jackson crime rate is higher than the national average by 99.4%. According to current statistics... Jackson is more dangerous than 82% of cities in the United States. Hang and on one second. I, I'm, I'm not math smart. We have, we have established that. Right, me neither. But, but Don't ask me to explain these numbers. Did you say, so it's higher than the national average by 99.4%, so it's 199.4% yes. crime rate? Yes. It's more dangerous than 82%, so oh. like, yeah, of, of other okay. cities oh, okay. similar wow. to it. Yeah. That is... And back in 1987, when the couple got married... Jackson was recognized as one of the 10 worst cities to live in, at least according to Money Magazine, which considered 300 cities on their livability scale, giving extra weight to key characteristics like safety, weather, and the local economy. Jackson's designation as a worst city actually led to a pretty hilarious multi-year feud between the city of Jackson and Money Magazine, which I'm not going to go into that, but it's a great side story. 
1994, Jackson eventually ranked dead last in livability. Now, that didn't stop the Artses from building what many perceived to be a good life in Jackson. In the years following their marriage in 1987, Kip and Patty became owners of Kip's Pizza and Taco House, located downtown. The two lived in an attached apartment, which was adjacent to the restaurant, not above it, and enjoyed a moderately prosperous living, which allowed them to pursue a shared passion for traveling and buy a nice Lincoln. As figureheads of Kip's Pizza and Taco House, the two were pretty well known in the community, if not popular. The community had, if not popular in the community of 35,000, a number that's pretty much been on steady decline since 1990. Perhaps Money Magazine was onto something. So Kip was the head chef and Patty ran the front of the house. Does anyone remember what it was like to call someone and get a busy signal? Don, I know you do. Absolutely. Of course. I only ask because that's what you'd often get when calling the arts household, a busy signal. Patty, her siblings, and mother were all very close. So close, in fact, she spoke with her mom or sisters daily just to say hi, catch up on the small things, gossip a little, give updates on the restaurant, and life in general. Patty and her family were so close and spoke so frequently It was almost like they knew everything about her. Almost. I'd like to point out now that uh, according to bestplaces.net, they rank 518 out of 1,297. So they've they've climbed up a little bit. middle of the pack now. Middle of the pack, yeah. Yeah. Before meeting Kip, Patty was in an abusive marriage for a number of years and had one child from that relationship. Fortunately, Patty was able to get out of the bad situation Now, Patty's family had never seen her so happy. They joined her and Kip on a wonderful vacation to Nantucket. It's been said one of the best things about Jackson is how close it is to better cities like Ann Arbor and Lansing, roughly 45 minutes from either destination. That's a a tough thing if that's your big one. (laughs) If you leave with that, it's like, hey, we're so close to all the better cities. It's great. (laughs) Uh, The Artses enjoyed little trip to these superior cities. Uh, Patty and Kip had no children of their own, and Patty's daughter was old enough she didn't live with them and had her own life, so the couple was able to travel at their leisure, spending as much quality time together as work allowed and afforded. Things seemingly went well throughout the early 90s, but as time went on, the economic downturn and stress of being a restaurant owner-operator began to exact its toll. Kip started taking Prozac for stress and anxiety, and he regularly smoked cannabis. Patty did not approve of Kip's pot smoking, not only because it was illegal, but also because she felt like they couldn't afford it. By the late 90s, their pizza and taco joint was struggling, and Kip had picked up a habit of excessively drinking. So, it's Prozac, booze, pizza, pot, and tacos. Possibly even in that order. By 1999, tensions were building, and the pleasant facade of Kip and Patty's life was starting to fray around the edges. As she grew increasingly frustrated with his alcohol and cannabis use, Kip was angry about her constantly being on the phone, particularly when she spoke in hushed tones 
beyond his range of hearing. Their pizza and taco palace was on its last leg. Then, in June of 1999, Kip decided to have a pig roast family reunion party. Patty was against the idea. They couldn't afford it. But Kip insisted and planned the party regardless. Patty could not have been more right. When Kip purchased all the pig roast fixins, he bought bug-infested corn. I couldn't find out what kind of bugs it was, but it was infested, and of course Kip didn't know it was bug-infested until after storing the corn in the restaurant, and a scourge of insects spread throughout the kitchen, spoiling everything. It was a huge setback. But Kip and Patty still managed to host a great party. Any tensions between them weren't really visible to guests. Behind the scenes, it was pretty much an unmitigated disaster, and Patty was furious. And can we talk about that for just a second, Don? the putting on the good face for people mm-hmm. and how, how tough that, that can really be for a couple who is already feeling strain. Kit plans this party. Everything's a disaster. Bugs everywhere. Patty wanted nothing to do with it. But nobody coming to that party knew shit was bad behind the scenes. Right. So she's, she's putting on a happy face. He's putting on a happy face because he's, you know, drinking his sad face away. And she's... And it goes so much deeper than that. You know, she's married to an addict and that's, I mean, that is not a fun place to be. So it's just compounding. Yeah, it is. Afterwards, Kip and Patty Arts spent several days cleaning bugs. It gets worse. It always gets worse. Instead of hiring professionals, which they likely could not afford, but probably should have done anyway, Kip and Patty chose to fumigate the restaurant themselves at Patty's insistence. Kip did not want to do this. Patty insisted, and Patty got what she wanted in this case. Thanks, Patty, for those customers that are eating at your restaurant. Uh, Yeah, I'm not blaming her. No, the fumigation was the right move. Your insistence is, is, you know, appreciated. Right. Well, and and she insisted they do it themselves. Kip wanted to hire hire the professionals and she's like, no, we can't afford it. And he's like, well, we should. And she's like, no, we can't. And we are going to fumigate. Okay. I thought it was like the fumigation, like in general. No, the professionals. Kip didn't want to be responsible for the fumigation. Patty was like, no, we're doing this. I'm doing it. You're helping me too bad. In the days following the fumigation, Kip's brain, perhaps coincidentally, developed blood clots and began to hemorrhage. He quickly underwent an emergency, but generally considered routine brain surgery on June 29, 1999. I only say perhaps coincidentally because Kip Arts was immediately convinced his wife tried to kill him with bug spray during their fumigation fiasco. Sounds like Kip has some guilt, but that's just me. (laughs) She forced him to fumigate when he wanted to hire professionals, and then she bug sprayed him against his will, thus triggering the clots and hemorrhage. It's what he believed. When the hemorrhage was identified, Kip had to immediately stop taking Prozac 
in spite of the risk factors involved with abruptly discontinuing the medication. Withdrawal symptoms include headaches, irritability, nausea, and mood swings. This is now commonly referred to as antidepressant discontinuation syndrome. Although several studies published in 2015 and 2016 claim links between violent behavior and antidepressants like Prozac, these studies are not viewed as conclusive and the topic is still open for debate. And it, it Anything gives, I figured I, you might want to... Yeah, I, I always want to add something on, yeah, on mental health. Yeah, please do, and, yeah. And if you're... And this was around that time when taking antidepressants was a sign of weakness. It was, you know, we it should be doing... Then. It was very taboo. And so I think... If you want to find a if you want to find a study to support your feelings in the medical field, you can find it. You know, so you can find one study that supports it. You can find one study that doesn't. And right. this was the be- kind of the beginning of those mood regulating, uh, or maybe the not the medications themselves, but the the popularity of them, if you will. I, yeah, I mean, I I think I it, think it gives it, it gives medication uh, a bad a name. stigma mm-hmm. there, there could yeah. be a stigma attached with that and I think this was also at a time like as you said it was still new so mm-hmm. if you have with a new medication even one person who takes this and then does something quote-unquote right. crazy right it people jump on it the news sensationalizes that yep. and See, so we can't we can't take that medication that's gonna, that's gonna yeah and this yeah. this was during that era, so it was it was that that moment of that of that scare. There was that hype, and I had to share about the studies because here we are, what twenty years later, it's still being debated. Following a successful surgery, Kip was released to Patty's care on July second, and he was angry. When Kip got home, the first thing he did was hit up his weed stash, roll a joint, and get high. Patty was not impressed with Kip's decision. This is a recurring theme. Kip didn't really give a shit. Also a recurring theme. But now, Kip was angry over the bug spray and his brush with death. He made no secret of bitterly blaming Patty when discussing the incident with friends and also with his physician during a follow-up visit about one week after release. So he goes for his follow-up checkup and he's telling the nurses, the, the doctor's assistant, the nurse is like, Patty tried to kill me with bug spray. Kip needs therapy, but hopefully, <laughs> uh, hopefully the, the nurse, I mean, kind of took him seriously, I guess. I mean, if, if it is, if it was in fact intentional, you know, they always at this point now, probably not at that time, but at this point they ask us, do you feel safe at home? Do you, you know, blah, 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 sure. blah, blah. So, I mean. Well, and what are the odds of, of developing a brain tumor a couple of days after, you, you know, you, you inhale right. potentially toxins? My, my question so, to, my question to, to old Kip here is, uh, did you wear a mask? Did you wear protective clothing and those things or, um, you know, but. I That's feel just, like no would be a safe wager. Details wager. we don't need to know from him, apparently. <laughs> yeah, like, what, Kip? Okay. In the days following Kip's release, numerous family members came to visit, offer their assistance, and check in on Kip and Patty. They observed Kip's behavior and mental health was sporadic following the brain surgery, at times appearing dazed, childlike, even dopey, with Kip recovering and unable to work, the Artses had to close the taco house. 
To make matters worse, they didn't have health insurance. Pressures were mounting, and Patty sold their Lincoln to help with finances. I'm guessing his behavior is, I mean, anytime a, a person has brain surgery too, it can alter your behaviors a little bit when someone's Indeed. monkeying around in there. It's, yes. you know, not the, even a routine, even a routine one. brain surgery. It's, it's not a, a great place to be. So I'm, I'm sure that was probably playing a part of it too. Not just the withdrawals from his medication. Of course. I think, I think both of these things are a factor. And when I was looking at it, they had said that he would need anywhere from six months to a year before sure. he could functionally work at anywhere close to the level mm-hmm. that he was at the taco house. So they're in a tight situation. And not a winning situation for a while. No, no. So Patty's family became worried in mid-July after not hearing from her in two days. No one had spoken to Patty since July 13th, nor had she responded to messages and the restaurant had now been closed for several days. Patty's sister and father showed up knocked on the doors and the windows, but no one answered. As they were peeking through the windows, Kip suddenly appeared outside and asked, what, what are you guys doing here? And there was a bit of an odd exchange between Kip and Patty's family. Patty's dad was kind of like, I'm the one asking questions here. Where the hell's my daughter? When Kip replied that Patty had taken their car to go visit friends out of town, it was an instant red flag. Patty's family knew he was lying because Patty had told them of this of the Lincoln sale, which was just a few days prior. And she would have told her sister and her mom that she was going to visit friends. One hundred percent. They talked every single day. Every right? single day. You know, when, and, and I think any of us, if, I don't know that there's anybody I talk to every single day that I don't see every day. Mm-hmm. But man, I tell you what, if I had that kind of stint with somebody... And then it's it's one day, okay, maybe I can let that slide. But on that second day... It's going to get weird. Yeah, I've like left something's, messages. Something's wrong. And mm-hmm. this is, of course, obviously pre-cell phone era. They've left uh, messages on the answering machine. Nobody's answering. It's creepy. They're freaked out. So at this point, Patty's relatives left to call 911 and report her missing, prompting a response to the taco house from Deputy Wayne Bassard. When Bassard arrived, Kip met him outside and reluctantly agreed to let the deputy take a look inside the restaurant. Although Bassard saw no signs of Patty, something seemed off. Not just with Kip's strange, reluctant, and quiet replies, but also inside the restaurant. There was a fried meat kind of smell that didn't belong. No. Bassard noticed Kip's hand was shaking as he unlocked the door, and when he let the cop in, Arts didn't turn on any lights. So he's just got this guy walking through his dark, stale, creepy, awkwardly fried meat smelling restaurant. When Bassard pointedly inquired as to Patty's whereabouts, Kip shriveled and stammered out his lie that Patty took their car to see friends. Bassard already knew this was this was bullshit. And that was enough to firmly solidify the deputy's suspicion something's wrong. Yeah, there's a there's a smell of human meat in the air. Something's wrong. Well, we don't know that yet. It's, it was a I smell, mean, a fried meat smell that didn't belong to go I ahead, think I'm I was go pretty and, clear. I'm going to go ahead and make that leap. We're leaping, jumping Oof. to conclusions Gosh. here. So 
After making arrangements to meet back at the taco house in a few hours, Kip was given over to the care of his father, who had now arrived at the restaurant. Bassard left to consult with his supervisor, Detective Thomas Fierro. The men agreed it was obvious they needed to investigate the restaurant as well as the arts apartment. They decided to return earlier than the agreed meeting time just to see what they could see. When they arrived and parked parked across the street and just watched, Bassard and Fierro noticed Arts shuffling around the corner of the building carrying a white box. A few minutes later, Arts re-emerged from around the building empty-handed. While Bassard went in search of the box, Fierro confronted Kip Arts and asked to take a closer look inside the restaurant. Arts reluctantly let him in, and the horrors spread throughout the taco house slowly began to reveal themselves. A soggy newspaper near the oven, discolored with brown drippings like watered-down blood from fresh meat. The water on the kitchen sink was running into a frying pan full of charred meat. As Fierro walked over to turn off the water, he recognized the unmistakable odor of burnt flesh. That makes me want to throw up. And I don't know why you changed like the octave of your, your voice, but it, ugh. I just, I have, I have the ick right now. Oh gosh. Yeah, why do I be like I don't, that? I don't know why you did that. And by the way, I, I do not know what is, uh, what is coming in this story. Like this is the first time that I have heard. I hit the wrong button. And don't, don't press <laughs> buttons during the recording. <laughs> uh, and and I, 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 so this is all new to me, and it is very uncomfortable. Feels icky. Mm-hmm. Minutes later, the white box was recovered from the neighbor's porch where Arts had stashed it. The horrifying contents inside the box still haunt Bassard to this day. An unrecognizable, severed, and partially cooked head. The skull cracked and fragmented, along with charred bones and crispy remains of flesh. 43-year-old Kevin Kip Arts was arrested on the spot for the suspected murder of his wife, 46-year-old Patricia Arts. All right, logistically speaking, and I figured out what it is. You slow down your talking at that point. That's what creeps me out. That's why I'm creeped out right now. Uh, but Good. logistically speaking, and it, this, this is, first of all, horrifying, absolutely horrifying. Did he put her entire head into the fryer? Like, is that what I'm, is that what I'm picking up here? It's, it's, it maybe it might've been boiled, broiled, baked and or fried. Yes. Okay. The discovery of what was presumably Patricia's head shed a grim new light, not just on the stench in the restaurant, but also the chunks of burnt meat and flesh Bassard and Fierro had noticed throughout the kitchen. When the forensics team arrived with luminol and sprayed the taco house kitchen, it was glowing. Fierro said of the blue glow on the floor and counters, you didn't need the lights on. Oh my gosh, this is horrendous. Ooh. Was anybody concerned for Patty's safety at this point? 
at no point was anybody concerned. Well, obviously for, not at this point. Prior this, to this, this no. point is a little nope. late, but Every, like more people were concerned about her ability to take care of Kip and that maybe Kip was uh, somewhat mentally incapacitated following the surgery. Sure. But nobody ever, ever anticipated that she at was least in not danger. Yet. Her family sure didn't. That she was in danger. That, no, that... no. Wow. Processing of the crime scene began immediately as Arts was hauled in. The illuminated path of bloodshed led into the apartment, and it didn't take long for investigators to start putting the evidence together. The living room was freshly cleaned, and the couch had been moved to conceal a blotchy spot on the carpet. Luminol testing showed the heaviest presence of blood on the carpet near the couch, but the remnants of carnage spread into the kitchen and on the dining room table. A bloody sleeping bag was discovered back at the restaurant, and Patty's blood was ultimately identified inside the bag, the restaurant sinks, throughout the arts apartment, the taco house floor, and in the fingernail scrapings of Kip Arts. But what exactly happened? Back at the station, Kevin Kip Arts was very forthcoming with a version of the tragedy. What he told officers is going to shake you. According to Arts, on July 13th, he awoke from an afternoon nap to discover a demon sleeping next to him. His survival instincts kicked in. Terrified, Kip Arts retrieved a metal pipe that he just so happened to have nearby and swung it down across the head of the hellspawn several times. All of a sudden, when he looked up again, Patty lay beneath him with a bleeding, partially crushed skull. Kip knew there was no way he could explain the crime, so he panicked. And by panicked, I mean this twisted son of a bitch shoved Patty into a sleeping bag, dragged her to the restaurant, and then spent the next 48 hours dismembering, chopping, baking, broiling, boiling his wife to pieces in the taco house. I feel like uh, if he would have, if that is in fact what happened, I, I feel like he could have um, just led with that, stopped right there. The guy had brain surgery recently. Maybe they crossed some wires and, you know, there would be some, uh, I don't know, just some... He's not a crazy madman at that point. But then when you spend two days, I, I feel like they would have maybe treated him with a little bit of compassion. But when you spend two days dismembering your wife and forgive me, I, I don't have another way to say this, cooking her essentially, that that says, you know, you, you went from here. There's a, a big line, right? And that's murdering someone. But then you went to a non-existent line that you don't even think you have to explain because it's just, you just shouldn't. And that's, that's where he's at. I mean, two days, two days you didn't have a thought in your head that I shouldn't be doing this. Right. Like, and that's a, that's a really fair point. You've got a mixture of brain surgery and the Prozac situation. And yeah, maybe you have some sort of paranoid delusion. And in an instant, you make this brutal, tragic mistake. But you wake up from it, you call 911. And maybe 
you, you probably have something there, Don. I think you're right. But to go on and you not spend, saying he deserves that. No, 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 yeah. no. But but still, uh, this this man used every available appliance in that kitchen to dispose of the evidence. Wow. They didn't have air fryers back then. It's about the only thing that wasn't used. My goodness. Patricia Arts was eventually identified using dental records. What remained of her was gone or unrecognizable. Of what was found in the box, a forensic pathologist confirmed the bones were human and the DNA from the head matched the remains of chunky flesh found in the kitchen. The medical examiner reconstructed the skull and theorized that it was struck by a heavy object. Entering trial, it was undisputed that Kevin Arts killed, dismembered, and then baked, boiled, and cooked his wife. Undisputed. So they didn't even, didn't even fight that part. They were did like, not yep, fight nope, that. Totally did that. This happened. We are, ex- we are accepting of these facts. I guess it's, it's going to be a, a sanity plea at this point. What the defense planned to dispute was the sanity of, Kip, of Kevin Arts at the time of his wife's murder. Their argument that the combination of abruptly quitting Prozac followed by brain surgery resulted in damage to the brain of Kevin Arts, which made him mentally insane and not responsible for his actions, it was a strong case. Several witnesses, including friends and at least one employee and Arts' own father, testified to Kip's mental decline following surgery. Arts was unable to identify colors or remember simple common things. One employee said he never saw hostility between Kip and Patty and that he believed Arts loved her with all his heart. Well, they were pros at hiding their their, you know, private anger with one another. So they, they really of, course were. of course they're not gonna they see really it. were. The defense conjured up several expert witnesses who believed Kevin Arts to be insane. Edward Cook, a neuropsychologist, testified that Arts had, quote, an organic psychotic condition and because of his mental illness, lacked substantial capacity to appreciate the nature, quality, or wrongfulness of his conduct, end quote. Cook believed Arts was insane before and after surgery. Bradley Sewick, a doctor of clinical psychology and a board-certified neuropsychologist, testified that the cerebral bleed was deep, destructive, severe hemorrhagic stroke, which not only affected speech, but also Kip's ability to think in a logical and rational manner. All of this resulted in damage to Arts' nervous system and a destruction of nerve cells in the brain. Arts suffered from delusions and hallucinations. Arts' sisters also insisted that his sudden release from the hospital just two days after brain surgery was irresponsible, unsafe, and that the hospital forced him out because he didn't have insurance. They also contested that the family should have been warned Kip might act strangely. I mean, do you think so? 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> you deserve a warning for that. This defense had a substantial chance of success, but the prosecution wasn't without its own star witnesses and expert testimony. The seemingly happy little life Kip and Patty had built over the years was not without turmoil. Prosecutors deployed their witnesses and meticulously weaved years of marital turmoil, erratic behavior, abuse, and even threats into a powerful narrative to counter the insanity pleas. Well, I'm guessing when, when Patty was speaking in hushed tones on the on the phone, I'm I'm guessing she wasn't, you know, boasting about her wonderful marriage. That's that's why he was so mad about it. It was, although I don't know if 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 Patty really shared that with her mom and sisters, maybe with some other friends, because from what it really all seems is that her my my belief is that she was possibly ashamed to share the shortcomings of her marriage with her family, but probably some of her other friends sure. knew about it. And we'll we'll, we'll sure. get into okay. that here. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Oh no, no, yeah. you're you're good. So. Michael Willis testified, that's one of Kip's friends, Michael Willis testified to a 1982 conversation, 1982 conversation he had with Kip. The men were discussing the capture of a then famous serial killer. During their chat, Kip told Michael while speaking in a low menacing voice that he could commit a perfect murder by cutting up his victim boiling the meat so the corpse wouldn't stink and then throw the meat in a restaurant dumpster. So remember at the top of the show when I said you say some weird shit mm-hmm. to your buddy, it's going to come back. They're going to remember are. 17 years later. They are going to remember 17 years later. Oh boy. That poor woman. In Ugh. 1992, Patricia Burke consulted with a divorce attorney citing there was physical and emotional abuse in the marriage. Approximately two and a half years before her murder, Patty told a friend that Kip tried to suffocate her with a pillow. Other witnesses testified to the tensions caused by the use of marijuana and alcohol, as well as to Kip's anger over the bug spray fumigation incident, blaming Patty for intentionally attempting to give him brain damage. The defense argued Kip's marijuana use had no impact on the murder or his judgment. So prosecution is making a big deal that his marijuana use was this focal point of anger and hostility between the two. And the defense says, man, the the marijuana had nothing to do with it. It didn't stop there. In 1998, while talking to his friend David Whiting, Kip casually mentioned he wouldn't be upset if Patty, quote, came up missing. He followed that statement up by asking Whiting if he knew anybody who could, quote, do it. Yeah, if you say to your friend that, do you know anybody that can, you know, make my wife go missing, that's going to stick out. And do you do you think that you, I mean, your friend is going to like you that much more that he's not going to say anything? I mean, obviously should have said something at that time. Right. But but obviously he's he's having his day in court. Another 1998 conversational lowlight from the escapades of Kip came from his own son-in-law, Virgil Weyerbaugh. Kip complained that 
Patty really knew how to push his buttons and asked Virgil if he ever got so mad at his own wife that he felt like killing her or having her killed. Which is his His daughter-in-law. His daughter, his stepdaughter. Yes. You ever think about uh, murdering my, my stepdaughter? Oh, my gosh. Then Kip openly pondered how much something like that might cost. Finally, Kip was vocally upset that Patty was treating him like a dumb baby after his surgery. Last and certainly not least, the prosecution's experts perfectly countered claims from the defense experts. Foremost among them, the neurosurgeon who performed Arts' surgery testified that Kip had a cerebral hematoma on the left temporal lobe of his brain, which controls speech. The clot was not acute and present for only one or two days. The evacuation of the blood clot was relatively easy and no abnormality was found in the brain. The cause of the hemorrhage was never determined. After surgery, Arts suffered from aphasia, which is word-finding difficulty. This is normal following brain surgery. While his process of thinking was not impaired, the conversion of thought to speech was impaired. He needed, he simply needed speech and occupational therapy to correct that. The neurosurgeon testified there was no nerve damage to the brain. He acknowledged the existence of a hospital note reflecting that Arts had a hallucination. However, the hallucination happened within two days of surgery when Arts was intensely sick, and this was not uncommon for a patient in the days following recovery. Joseph Galdi, a forensic pathologist and neuropsychologist, testified there was no basis to conclude that Kip Arts met the criteria for legal insanity. The functions of problem solving and analysis are controlled by the front of the brain, which was not affected by surgery. Kip's aphasia would not have caused him to commit violence. According to Galdi, Kip was not suffering from delirium or a major depressive disorder in spite of the sudden discontinuation of Prozac prior to surgery. Galdi's testimony is particularly relevant as he oversaw Kip Arts's pre-trial five-month evaluation and residency at the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services Center for Forensic Psychiatry. Forensic psychologist Charles Clark believed Kip was lying because he told inconsistent versions of Patty's death. Arts's psychological test results showed mild reactionary depression, but not major disorders, and there was no documented conditions before the injury. Kip's prescription to Prozac was for anxiety and stress. At the time of Patty's killing, Kip was completely in touch with reality, aware of repercussions, and not operating under the influence of delusion. Their final expert, a cardiologist, testified that Kip's cerebral bleed was superficial, did not penetrate the brain, had no vascular deformities following surgery, and no evident brain damage. So they really countered the defense experts every step of the way. And I think it was, you know, the using the the defense using 
the the Prozac withdrawal as as a defense. I mean, it was it was kind of somewhat it was relatively new at that time. It was compelling. And so and so people are afraid of the unknown. Yes. Right? And so it's like, oh my gosh, it must be that. It's something new. It must be that. It's a good observation. A true cause of death was never officially determined because all that remained of Patty was a few pounds of flesh, broken bones, and a partially destroyed skull. In closing arguments, the prosecution argued Kip, motivated by his anger related to the marijuana disputes with Patty and the fumigation, planned this murder, if not carefully. Insanity had nothing to do with it. Although the family of Kip Arts held strongly to their belief that he was in a state of insanity and distress after being taken off Prozac and following brain surgery, the jury did not agree and rejected Arts' insanity defense. He was found guilty of first-degree murder in February of 2001 and ultimately sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Surprised at the result? Not at all. Not at all surprised. In, I, I think their experts nailed it. They did have, I think, a relatively strong defense case with that myriad of things that happened, but there was an explanation for everything that mm-hmm. Kip's, Kip was claiming. And again, his history of speaking about violence haunted him. If you don't have these witnesses, his buddy in 82 that he's like, oh, I could, I could just hack a body up and throw it away in the restaurant. You know, you, I think if you don't have some of these things that establish patterns before yeah. the event, yeah. uh, he, he pro- again, he probably had a better case. In 2007, the aforementioned expert prosecution witness, Joseph Galdi, went on to write an official letter to a federal judge where Galdi shared his belief that Arts was actually in a state of marijuana-induced psychosis at the time of Patricia's murder. However, neither the defense nor the prosecution allowed Galdi to present this belief at trial. This was used as the foundation for an appeal and a retrial. The judge... Now that surprises me more than the, than, than the outcome of his first trial. I, I agree. Because this was the prosecution witness. Yeah, this wow. was a this was a prosecution state witness, and he he wanted to share his belief. Mm-hmm. He thought that Arts was actually in a marijuana psychosis. Hmm. The judge deciding this appeal for a new trial concluded there was not reasonable probability to believe this new information would lead to Arts's acquittal. In the judge's opinion. Arts' then lawyer, Joseph Phillip, who was now a district court judge, opted not to pursue the marijuana psychosis. Phillip testified he did not believe a jury would believe such a defense and made a tactical decision at trial to argue in favor of insanity. Circuit Judge Thomas Wilson said, quote, in addition No one at the evidentiary hearing could testify to defendant's use of marijuana in the two weeks prior to the murder, not to mention that Mr. Arts just happened to have a metal bar handy while he was hallucinating in bed with his wife, Wilson wrote. Yeah, those are those are big time Swiss cheese holes. Like that's like I I mean It's as Swiss as it gets. Like nice nice try, but no. 
The case made headlines again when Arts's former lawyer, now a judge, Joseph Phillip, used the story in an effort to scare the shit out of high school students and prevent them from smoking pot. In 2016, during a court-at-school program where mock trial proceedings were held with 200 students, Judge Phillip warned students marijuana use would soften their brain and they could wind up in prison or worse, killing, dismembering, and cooking their loved ones. I mean... Wow. Quote, so the argument that marijuana doesn't hurt anybody, Philip said, yeah. Kevin Arts cooked his wife because he was hallucinating over marijuana, thought she was the she-devil. At least that's what he told people. This is what he said to students? This is what Philip said to students at the mock trial in 2016, yes. (laughs) Don't smoke pot. Also, you that's might a human cook being. someone. That's a human being, right? Like, and it's 2016 at this point. Yes. I mean, it's legal in states at the, you know, in 2016 or, or just about maybe pretty close. It's, it's legal in many states. Michigan at this time was a state that was pushing for medical as well as legal. Sure. And now in 2023, it is it legal is. in Michigan. But back here in, I think, 2016 when this was, it was kind of a battleground for um, medicinal use of marijuana sure. and then pushing for that recreational. And Philip here. How old is he? How old is uh, this guy? He's older. I, I don't know for sure. He's in his 50s or 60s at this point, though. He's a judge, you know, and he made it clear. He made it clear he's against legalization of marijuana and he disputes that it, you know, disputes claims that it reduces crime. Quote, if someone breaks into your house so they can steal stuff to buy marijuana, would you care? He asked high school students. They have to commit crimes to support that habit. Marijuana becomes a habit. And is he like, is he mixed up on drugs? I mean, I am, I'm, I'm not a drug user, regardless of the story I told about fireball earlier. Right. I I mean, people aren't, it's not cocaine in the eighties. It's not meth. And it's not, I mean, what in the world? He went on and the idea that quote, legalizing marijuana, he's talking about the idea that quote, it frees us up to chase the bad guys. What drug do you think the bad guys are on most of the time? Marijuana or they're an alcoholic. That's what I see in the system from my perspective. Am I dead wrong? Could be. Sure are. (laughs) The judge said multiple times that marijuana and alcohol softens the brain, making people more susceptible to harder drugs, including meth, cocaine, and heroin. Essentially calling it a gateway drug. Yes. Right. But people aren't, oh, I, never mind. It, <laughs> like, wow. Wow. And he's a judge talking, talking this way in front, of, in front of students. 200 students at a high school. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Arts remains in a Michigan prison to this day. Papers following these events dubbed him the deep fry killer, although I prefer deep fried dipshit. The taco house was remodeled into offices in the years after Patricia's murder. A common rumor involved with this case was that Patty was served to customers. This is categorically false. The restaurant was 
never open for business at any time in the days preceding or during her murder. This guy has... uh, It's such a breakdown. It's such a breakdown. And then just to... And and to use to use a, a drug that helps a lot of people to use that as an excuse as your scapegoat only ruins it for other people. Like not only has he killed his wife, but now he's created this or helped create this stigma with with mental health drugs. Like, yes. ugh. Yeah, and so many chances to get out. It's it's, it's again, you, okay, you don't like your wife anymore. Just divorce Just her and divorce. move on. Neither of you have anything. It's okay. It's not going to be that big of a fight. Right. Like, you it's okay. You have no kids. You have no money. Right. You get a split debt. Hey, it happens. That's okay. That, that's that's what's insane to me. I and don't I don't get it. But instead, you're going to make up this incredible I saw the devil. Yeah, you're going to use that. And then... But not also not just stop there. You're going to just dismember her body and 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 proceed in such a way that is horrific. Like this is this is one of the worst ones I, I can remember you covering. Like this is this is awful. And I, I had meant to put this so they found several axes and um I think like one meat cleaver, but it was it was believed most of the dismemberment was done with an axe. So this guy's swinging an axe, slicing, chopping, grinding, crushing two days. That's a that's a certain level of anger, well, and and I mean, oh, I mean it's 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 anger. It's it's uh, it's it's psychotic. Yeah. It's a little bit psychotic. It, it, right, right. The. Uh, Sometimes, like the the amount of time spent in the aftermath by this man is what creeps me out. That's like, the, I think that's like, the worst part. Yeah. It is the worst, by far the worst part. Like sometimes you can get to a, you can understand how somebody gets to a breaking point and one thing happens in an instant. If a person and then snaps, there's a follow up, yeah, right? Yeah. But but to have this and then to go into forty eight hours, of, that's yeah. weird and stressful and crazy and you know. Did he have the TV on while this was happening? Right. Was he you know? just, did he, did well, he take a break and make lunch? Like, you know, what, what? Uh, how could you even have an appetite while doing something like that? But it's a lot of work. So I imagine this guy, it's so this bad. This guy is unhinged, unhinged. Sources for this story, the State of Michigan Court of Appeals, law.justia.com, mishbar.org, the Battle Creek Inquirer, story by the Associated Press, the Detroit Free Press, story by Matt Helms, crimegrade.org, mlive.com, articles by Ken Wyatt, Danielle Salisbury, and Gus Burns, areavibes.com slash Michigan, medicalnewstoday.com, psychcentral.com, and the timeline, thepeopleofhistory.com, historicnewspapers.com, and fbi.gov. This episode was written by Jonah Lanto and is co-hosted Midwest Murder by myself and Don Palumbo. Please do follow us on any social medias. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And if you're here with us tonight, of course, scan that little QR code, submit your episode title suggestions and questions for the Q&A. Thank you so much, Kildeer. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. 